Welcome to another edition of Talking Fußball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are going to do all we can to dispel the notion that Bayern München are the only team in this league who can go out and score with aplomb, at least on a Saturday, maybe maybe that's true. With me this week to talk through all the Fußball storylines is my man, Terry DeFellin. Good to be here with you, man. It's good to be here too, although I'm feeling somewhat unbalanced. My equilibrium is sort of like, it's been hit for seven. I'm not (laughs) quite sure I know where I am. Something going on with your inner ear? (laughs) Yeah, that's probably actually it. Either that or I've been watching too much Bundesliga this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. We had a lot of ups and downs. We had a lot of storylines which feel true and others that don't feel as true. We had huge fireworks, of course, in Munich on a day, Saturday, when a lot of teams seem to be saving their powder. We'll probably have time to talk about the player who seemed to take it personally when we declare Jamal Musiala the best young German in the league. And, of course, about the player who uh, he's practicing for a second career as a, as a trick shot YouTuber. Anyway, we'll be coming right back. Okay, here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct, the part where we talk about the big games, the big stories coming out of each match day. This is match day five in the Bundesliga, of course. I reckon we got to start where kind of the most meat was. And, you know, this caused a lot of consternation on Saturday. I think we kind of already tipped our hand a little bit to this. We had one result during the afternoon slate known by most people as the Konferenz slate, because, you know, in Germany, you have that great sort of red button whip around thing where you can watch all the games or at least all the goals ostensibly. And it was a real weird situation because Bayern defeated Bochum at home 7-0. And I think until the last 10 minutes in all the other games, <laughs> there were no goals at all. We will, you know, mention the fact that eventually, you know, FC Augsburg did sneak a goal in. They got a win in their game. But it is true that the rest of the games were goalless. I guess maybe we should probably touch on the Bayern Bochum game first, just to sort of, you know, set the table. Leroy Sané, who, by the way, has been really on the upswing the last several weeks, certainly since the international break. He opened the scoring for Bayern in the 17th minute, and they didn't stop scoring for a long time. (laughs) Two goals from Joshua Kimmich, one apiece from Serge Gnabry, Robert Lewandowski, and Eric Maxim Tupamoting with an own goal for good measure. Very one-sided affair, of course. Um, Not really a shocker in that Bayern have been beating teams quite badly lately. 5-0 over Hertha, 4-1 over Leipzig, a 3-1 win in Barcelona that felt like 13-0. But this was a real blow for Bochum, I thought. They came into this league with, you know, not a huge head of steam. Like, I I would say them and Fürth being two of the bigger outsider promoted sides in recent memory. But I thought Bochum has actually been good thus far this season. They, of course, got a win over Mainz, but even their other games against, uh, you know, Wolfsburg, Hertha, Cologne, they were in all those games. What did you make both of the fact that Bayern basically took a Saturday stroll in this game and made Bochum look like a joke? Alongside that fact that I pointed out earlier that seemed to cause a lot of people a lot of heartache, that they're the only game in town in the Bundesliga, that they're really the only team that functions like a well-oiled machine. They're the only team who can score at will. They basically use the league as their plaything. Is, is is this all ringing true to you? Is this just kind of a much of a muchness? I think I do understand that point of view. I think we've seen enough quality in the Bundesliga this weekend with the other games that we'll probably go on to talk about to perhaps put into rest any suggestions that the Bundesliga is a low-quality league and that the Bayern is the best of a bad bunch. I think we've got an extraordinary situation here when we've got a very highly professionalised league with a lot of extremely talented footballers. In some instances, world-class coaches. But at the top of it, we've got a club that just is better at everything than everybody else and has also as a consequence, more money than anybody else. And then he's in a a position to be able to maintain that position. 
I mean, the fact of the matter is that Bayern Munich, they don't treat this league as its plaything because if they did, then they might have only won that match perhaps 2 or 3 nil, or maybe they would have conceded a goal. The reason why Bayern Munich continue to succeed, one of the reasons why they continue to succeed in this league is because they treat it very seriously and they treat everybody with the utmost respect, including VfL Bochum. Now, they treated Barcelona with huge amounts of respect and they absolutely caned them. And they treated Bochum with the same degree of respect. They are an opponent to be beaten. And it just so happened that Bochum, yeah, have, have come into this league and, you know, are in a relatively weak position by comparison to other teams in the Bundesliga and, and were given a, a spanking. But I don't imagine that any of those Bayern players sort of like, you know, just like got into their cars afterwards and then went for a couple of beers and had a chat. They would have, you know, it would have taken a lot out of them. The, the admirable thing about this Bayern side is that they're, they've got the best coaches, they've got the best players, they're the best set up team. They're just the best all round. And you'll get results like this and we'll see that. With Bayern, it doesn't denigrate the rest of the league necessarily, but it does perhaps, you know, open up areas of criticisms for more illustrious opponents and rivals. But as we'll see, you know, there's plenty of value and quality in the Bundesliga. But yeah, I mean, as a neutral spectacle, if you want to see, you know, close title races every season, and if you want to see different champions, then 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 you know you're in you're in for a tough time with the Bundesliga it's not really going to necessarily deliver you that at the moment and those are fair criticisms i mean there's a reasons for not bothering to watch the Bundesliga because you know what's going to happen there's not enough peril in it but there is still plenty of mileage and value further on down the league for those of us that love it and watch it there's plenty to get stuck into and we saw that we saw that on saturday and and we saw it today yeah yeah i i have to say i mean I've watched the Bundesliga long enough to know <laughs> that when when Bayern play against a team like Bochum, and you know, no offense to Bochum, but every season there's a there's another Bochum of of some kind. Sometimes it's Paderborn, sometimes it's Fürth, sometimes it's some other team who's who's barely hanging on. I've watched this league long enough to know that unless you just want to watch a cavalcade of Bayern goals. You don't watch that game on a Saturday morning, in my case, being in, in, in North America. So I did not watch this game. I watched Mainz versus Freiburg. And that was a game that ended nil-nil and that, you know, was, was one of those games that was getting a lot of stick on the internet, not only from, you know, fans of, of other leagues who, who like to look down their nose at the Bundesliga, but even some Bundesliga fans who just sort of were disappointed with a lack of, of offensive entertainment. But, I, I enjoyed that game. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good up and down game between two very well coached teams, two teams who, you know, know how to collectively defend both around their goal and also pressuring the ball up the pitch. Teams that, you know, have some dangerous players going forward as well, even have players that can come off the bench and do damage in a Bundesliga game. They both were probably a little bit unlucky not to convert the chances that they had. But I I thought it was a pretty good game. I don't know about, you know, Augsburg versus Gladbach or Bielefeld versus Hoffenheim, those other low-scoring encounters happening at the same time as Bayern. But maybe someone could tell me that those were entertaining too. I don't know. Well, I mean, the thing is, Matt, is that because obviously we didn't we didn't coordinate and I watched the same game that you did. But, but, and I, so again, why don't we say we did coordinate? <laughs> I, I suppose it would have been helpful if one of us had watched another game there or at least one of us watched the buying game. Well, we didn't miss anything. We, we missed yeah, one goal from Augsburg. That was my my thinking. Was like, I was like, I, look, I looked at that buying game and I thought, well, there's a reason why this is on a Saturday afternoon is because no one wants it for the TV slots because... Everyone knows what's going to be. It's going to be a turkey shoot. And, and, and that's, I guess, probably, you know, what happened here. And I looked at Mainz versus Freiburg and I thought, well, these are two teams that I don't watch enough of playing together. And I've got, you know, I, when we did, when we had our preview, I, I went fairly big with, with Mainz. I said that Mainz were going to do okay. And I thought, well, I, I should check in. And what's your, your summation of the game is just taking words out of my mouth. I mean, that is exactly what I thought. I mean, these are two, systemically excellent football teams, brilliantly coached, properly coached, but ultimately lacking, perhaps lacking just that extra bit of quality to be able to do something extraordinary to break down the opposition system 
and makes a breakthrough and score the goal. And and that was what was missing. We probably sound to people like a couple of hipsters because it's like, oh, well, right, great, yeah. You watch Minds Me Freiburg, yeah. Oh, oh, great, great. But it, it's not like that. We're not hipsters. It's what, it, isn't, it isn't like that at all. It was out of a genuine, spontaneous interest to see how, you know, how these two clubs were doing and how these two teams were, were doing, and in my case, particularly Mainz. And it was a tasty game. I mean, like Christian Strike was getting worked up with some of the, what he thought was some of the Mainz players play acting. Both Svensson's got his Mainz team really wound up. They're really committed. It was a massively, hugely committed game. Lots of crisp passing, lots of fantastic movement, but yeah, just not that one moment of quality which the game needed to just like lift it and elevate it. Which will probably, you know, which other games over the weekend did have, and so yeah, it was one of those kind of nil nils. It wasn't a bore draw. It was a really interesting and enjoyable football match, and I'm I'm glad we got the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I tuned in because I have have seen bits and pieces of both those teams this season, and I've come to the conclusion that they're both good, and I'm going to enjoy watching those two teams for. Pretty much the balance of the season, unless something goes, you know, horribly sideways for them, injury-wise or something. I was a little less convinced by Mainz because I felt that, you know, maybe some of the, uh, the the energy that went into the final season push last season would be hard to sustain. But that has not been in evidence at all. I thought Freiburg would be good. They didn't lose much of any talent the way that they often do, where they, you know, have years where, where four or five, six players will leave. I'm still bullish on both of them, and you know. <laughs> I have no regrets for watching that nil-nil draw. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you also have license to do so because presumably you probably had to endure Hertha versus Furt the, the, the night before as well, which must have been quite an emotional roller coaster for you. So yeah, yeah, you're allowed, you can have, you can you can choose who you like to watch. <laughs> we'll we'll bring that one up later. Let's talk, however, about um, some of the some of the other higher quality games of the weekend, which happened after the conference slate. I guess first of all, maybe we can talk about a game from today, from Sunday, which is um, one that I think you probably had quite an eye on and one that, you know, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Bayern had a seven-goal game, you know, between them and Bochum. Dortmund, we know that they love uh, seven-goal games. They don't tend to, you know, put put all their eggs on in one basket. They like to, you know, hand a couple to the other team. As we know from last week, of course, when they got that 4-3 result over Leverkusen, it seemed that the end of this week's game, a home match against Union Berlin, that maybe we're going to be in for another 4-3 kind of a game. Weird one. I mean, Bayfabe, they were up 3-1 with 10 minutes to play. They were coming under increasing pressure from Union. Union eventually earned a corner, which led to Andreas Fogazama scoring on a header, which, you know somehow was just a little too strong for Gregor Kohlbeil, despite the fact that it was more or less right at him. And that seemed to get some people worried, but not for too long. Erling Holland latched onto this sort of speculative long ball over the top from, from Mats Hummels. And, and I guess he decided that over the top was, was the way to go with a shot as well. He kicked the ball across his body with his left, just skying the ball into the night air, giving Union goalkeeper Andreas Luther a little bit of time to think about his positional mistake and enough time to really look dejected when he saw the ball bounce <laughs> eventually over the line. That was game over. That made it, you know, 4-2. No comeback was in the cards for Union there with about seven minutes left. Hugely entertaining game, lots of quality, really good goals from Dortmund in this game, I have to say, especially uh, Rafael Guerrero's opener. But, but, you know, I've made reference to their tendency to give cheap goals away. I've made reference to some of the individual quality that they have, such as Erling Holland or, or Guerrero, or on other occasions, we've seen it from, you know, Brandt, we've seen it from Reyna, we've seen it. Uh, Bellingham, of course, they kind of feel like they're riding their luck thus far this season where, you know, they have just too many excellent players to, you know, get beat. But <laughs> but they're testing the limits of that theory week on week. How can you manage to put together this team of amazing footballers and yet not be able to coordinate them in a way that, say, 
Christian Strike or both Svensson can do, you know, particularly Svensson because he did it in such a short space of time. When you look at Strike, he's been there for a long time and there's a hard-wired football team there to strike ball. And Svensson's story is a different one. But you look at, like, the way Dortmund are, there, they can play like such a rabble and they just get themselves out of trouble because they've just got so much unbelievable quality. And the club's tremendous strength is the ability to recruit top-class players and then those players then play and they play brilliantly and it's fantastic and we get we get moments like this, we get games like this. But running alongside that should be the systems and the processes and the coaching to organise the defence about set pieces, to be able to game manage better and to know that, you know, Union have had a, they've had a difficult midweek, you know, to a degree like Dortmund, but Union more so, I think, because they played a lot of their Conference League game with 10 men. They would, not, they would have been a little bit jaded. Dortmund, I think did the right thing by going out, going after them early in there. But in fact, what happened was I was kind of expecting Union to, to, to maybe tire over the course of the game. But in fact, largely because they were encouraged to do so by Dortmund, they got back into this match and put themselves in a position where they were worried for the points in a match that, you know, really they were the better side and should have won quite comfortably. I mean, from a neutral point of view, I mean, who cares? We get the opportunity to watch these knockabout games of football involving Borussia Dortmund where they're as generous at the back as they are, you know, ruthless at the front. And we see fantastic, like, Hail Mary goals. You know, we, you know, Hummel's, like, lumping it up the field for Haaland to just, like, latch onto. And with this piece of absolute instinctive brilliance. But that's not in any playbook. That's not written on a spreadsheet somewhere. That's not a PowerPoint presentation. That move is on no one's clipboard, right? That is just pure instinctive football. But the danger is, is that I don't think that gets you through an entire season in a professional league. I think ultimately you need to be able to have better systems and you'd be able to be able able to coach your teams better. It's not an issue with Marco Rosa necessarily because he's just arrived. This has been something that, that Dortmund have had problems with for a long time now, particularly on set pieces. Our colleague Nick Veldhagen pointed this out yet again, and he's right to point it out on the numerous times that he does, is that Dortmund have had a succession of coaches and a succession of set piece defence problems. And Union are good at set pieces. And this needs to be worked through with Dortmund. But at the moment, we need to really just enjoy this, I think, because Bayern are so damn good that it doesn't matter how good Dortmund are or anyone else or Leipzig or anything like that for that matter. I don't think anyone's stopping them from winning the Bundesliga. So we may as well just enjoy this kind of madcap football. And for those of us who have skin in, in, in Dortmund and want to see them do well because we're fans of them, hopefully over time they'll develop, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll play a little bit more like a professional football team should play rather than sometimes like a bunch of kids in the park. Yeah, it makes me wonder. You mentioned Nick, you know, our, our erstwhile colleague's comment, frustrated comment, although perhaps not, not in the way that you might feel the frustration, <laughs> about Dortmund's inability to defend set pieces, which has um, plagued them for, for a number of years. I would say in general, their defensive record, especially when it comes to sort of mental errors, has been pretty poor for the last several years. And we've, we've had a lot of different coaches there, but I think most notably Favre, Terzic, now Rosa. I mean, Rosa is still very early in his tenure, but there is a temptation to say that something in the club culture, something in the culture of that squad, something deeper has gone wrong when it comes to coachability. I mean, because, you know, obviously Aiden Terzic had not a huge resume going into that job. Well, it's certainly no resume at the, at the, at the top level. But he is not known as a coach who is more of a vibes coach who just puts out his best player and players and, and lets them go. I mean, he's, he's known as somebody who knows what he's doing with, with tactics. And certainly Marco Rosa and Lucien Favre are known as, you know, coaches, coaches in that respect. And still nobody seems to know how to sort out this team defensively, principally, but to a lesser extent, even going forward, they, they, they can lace together a lot of really cool instinctual patterns because they have so many skillful players who can play the ball with a lot of close control and who have a fair bit of understanding with each other of, of how to sort of unpick some locks. But they're, they're totally missing 
that kind of organizational integrity almost everywhere. Absolutely. And I mean, you could consider a few things. Sooner or later, Guerrero presumably is going to probably end up moving on. You're almost certainly looking at Haaland moving on at the end of the season. I can't believe that it will be too much longer before an English club insists that Jude Bellingham comes back to England and sits on the bench maybe at Old Trafford for half a season <laughs> as punishment for having moved to Germany in the first place. The Dortmund need to consider this. Their recruitment is outstanding, but it, all it takes is one bad year or one bad couple of years where they make the wrong calls, where they make the, to do the wrong hires, where it doesn't work out. You know, We've seen players come to Dortmund and not succeed with big reputations. They've gone on and done well afterwards, perhaps, but doesn't necessarily work. Just because they signed Haaland once, there isn't going to be another Haaland waiting in the wings necessarily to just slot in in the way there's. We've got Makoku to think about, but no guarantees there. You know, they're playing a dangerous game because you, what you need to back that up is the insurance policy of a team that can be organised. And the, I mean, I think you're right. And I don't know whether or not it's got anything to do with the dressing room culture, although you have to consider that. I look at the way that Jude Bellingham like, takes control of the midfield in that Dortmund side and it thrills me, it absolutely thrills me. But there's another part of me that thinks, how tactically disciplined is he actually playing here? You know, is he doing what he's told? Players who pop up everywhere is really exciting, but you also yeah. wonder, like, <laughs> isn't there some place he's supposed to be? And Exactly. And what's going to happen if he does go back to England, though, in fairness, and he turns up there and he's expected to be like, you know, uh, like, you know, like a captain everything, a bit like Steven Gerrard's greatest excesses were sometimes that he would sometimes take the leadership role too seriously or would end up just doing whatever the hell he wanted to on the pitch. And there's, there's a whiff of Bellingham about that. It's like the whole... And people love that. They love those kind of midfielders that cover every grade of glass. And he is a joy, a joy to watch. But you do have to ask yourself if perhaps there is some wisdom in, him, in his coach saying, dude, actually, this is your job now and we want you to do this against this opposition, please. I'm not blaming or singling out Bellingham for any of the of the defensive or, or problems that happened today. This is an, an in-general conversation about the way that Key and indeed Borussia Dortmund play is that I wonder, there just seems to be some tactical indiscipline at work here. And it's not necessarily in the best interest of the players as well because remember, Dortmund is kind of sold to these players as being a bit of a finishing school. You get to come here, you get to play top-class football, you get to play in the Champions League, and then you get moved on for a large sum of money, which is we then reinvest back in our club, and then you get to go and do that. But look at look at where Sancho is. Look at what happened to Dembele. You know, are these guys genuinely getting the preparation they need to then go on to the next club? There's all of these things to think about Dortmund's model and to think about how exciting it is, but at the same time, you know, it is flawed and it is consistent with Dortmund's you know, history because they are a flaky football club. And my God, they're playing so flaky these days. Yep. Quick word about uh, Unyelin before we move on from this. Obviously, they, I think they, they, they put in a pretty nice effort in this game and they, they sort of stayed in it until pretty late on. This is coming after their first UEFA Europa Conference League group stage game, which of course they lost down in down in Prague. They had to do a little bit of rotating to make things work in, for the burden there. And as you said, they were not tiring at the end, but I don't know. It, it, does this portend this result? Because you know, let's face it, Union pretty much always played Dortmund well. You know, this, this just seems to be a, a fixture that they get up for. How do you like their future? This first half of the season, you know, because let's let's say that they don't make it through the group stage, which I think is a decent proposition considering they lost their first game. But you know, obviously, there's another five games to play. Do you think this could be a, could be a tricky first half of the season for for Union? Yeah, they, they look they appear to be quite jaded at the start of this game. Or I mean, well, this could have been a lot of it because Dortmund did kind of overrun them, and I think Dortmund intended to try and overrun them and subdue them early doors before they got back into this game. But they did seem a little bit jaded. I mean, they, they did and almost get a, a goal in the first minute, which happened to be slightly offside. This is this is worth bearing, bearing in mind, yeah, because Awani had, had a really good chance. But yes, he was just somewhat marginally offside. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's a, it's, it's a game of fine margins, isn't it? I, I don't know that I've seen enough necessarily to, to be concerned on the basis of what I've seen of them. I've seen two games now. This is the second game I've seen them play in, and they played well in both games. The other game was against Leverkusen, and they played extremely well. My concern for them is the fact that they're not used to 
to European weeks. They're not used to midweek matches on, with any degree of regularity themselves. And so it could be that they'll struggle to, to maintain that intensity. But what was encouraging about their performance was when they were given the opportunity to get back into the game, they got back into the game. And there was only a brief period during the match when they looked genuinely beaten, but they were allowed back into it and they took advantage of that opportunity. And who knows? I mean, like if Harland hadn't scored that worldie, then, you know, there, would, there was still, you know, a good 10 minutes left in that football match for them to find another gear. And we would have been having a completely different conversation by now. So I think that there's plenty of room and plenty of mileage for, for Union. But I also feel that they'll probably, once their European journey is over, although they will be, if, although it will be a sadness for them, I'm sure it will allow them to properly concentrate on staying in the league. And I am assuming that that's always going to be Union's first priority is avoid relegation. Yeah, it's worth bearing out. I mean, we've got certainly in, in in Furt and probably possibly in Bochum. You know, you've got your contenders for the bottom two right there. So I don't know whether or not there are too many other teams that need to worry too much about about relegation because I think we've got some pretty strong candidates. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not at all clear yet who's going to be in that conversation in the long run. Mm. Okay, let's talk about one more game before we take a break, and that was the top spiel, the uh, the Saturday night game between Cologne and Leipzig. Pretty interesting set of, you know, circumstances coming into this game. Obviously, Leipzig, the team who, who finished runners-up last year, who, you know, then, you know, fed <laughs> their best talents to, to to Bayern over the summer, have gotten off to a pretty indifferent start under Jesse Marsh. Things are completely different in Cologne, a team that that really struggled to function at any kind of uh, respectable level last season, looked completely transformed coming into this season. So ostensibly smaller team playing better at home against a, a you know a, an alleged giant who who were struggling this had all the makings of a really tasty encounter and i thought it delivered it massively delivered this was the game of the weekend it was absolutely fantastic superb football from both teams and what were we talking about earlier about systems and stefan baumgart has come in and he's imposed some discipline on Cologne. But what he also brings, in a broader sense, if I may, is he also brings tremendous emotion as well, I think. And you can see that's the way that they play too. Yes, they are tactically disciplined, but they also play with tremendous emotion. And that means a great deal, particularly when you're playing at home in front of, albeit not a full crowd, but in front of that crowd. I mean, we know how intense a club Cologne is at the best of time. And we know that that intensity can often be their downfall and they can be the, the butt of a lot of people's jokes. But my goodness, if you can get a coach and a group of players to get that team humming and the whole club hums with it. And they're fantastic. It's fantastic to see. It's a great spectacle. It always is. And this was an awesome game of football. And I really, I don't, I mean, it's disappointing, I guess, that Leipzig have kind of, from the Leipzig point of view, that they've kind of dropped down a, a bit. And, but there was enough quality in that side for them to really, really give each other a fantastic game. And there was tremendous emotion on both sides. Because Cologne got stuck in to, to, to Leipzig in this game. I think the plan was to get right in their faces, get stuck in, unsettle them. They've had a difficult start to the season. Don't give them time to think. And they've also got quality. So we saw this really even, really emotional football match. So I have to say, and we don't usually talk about this, or I don't usually talk about this, but I mean, I benefited hugely from from pretty superior TV coverage as well. I thought the TV coverage of it was particularly good because I just feel that they just like caught the drama of it really, really well. There was an awful lot of focus on Stefan Baumgart and his prowling around the touchline. And his, <laughs> He's and his, great TV, man. <laughs> his, that white flat cap of, that we've mentioned before he's there he is I mean you've got Jesse Marsh who's like you know the, you know like spelt and fitted jeans you know all poise and decorum and then you've got this kind of like you know fat fat German guy in a white flat cap and black tracky bottoms like rolling around <laughs> shouting expletives and this is the contrast of modern football it's why it's so awesome and neither one is better than the other and it was just a glorious emotional display. And hats off to Phil and, and Sean Dundee, Phil Bonnie and Sean Dundee, for, for calling it really, really well. And I think it helped the fact that, 
you know, you had a guy like Phil commentating it, who's, you know, he's a resident of Cologne and has been for many years and knows the city's character extremely well and just is able to convey the lunacy that is FC Cologne at, at times and why it, it's actually quite a lovable club if you ever wanted to take the time to get to know it. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed reading some quotes from uh, Stefan Baumgart following this game. And I'm not sure whether it was immediately post-game or whether it was his sort of like Sunday morning debrief, which a lot of coaches end up doing, where he was asked by a journalist about, you know, since Cologne are flying high and there's a lot of press going around on him, you know, asking him if, if, if he would ever consider, you know, moving to Bayern or a bigger club or something like that. And he was just like... Dude, I'm already at a big club. Why should I think about going to another club? Like, this is absolute music, music to the ears of Cologne supporters. <laughs> because, you know, he mentioned the fact that they're the fourth largest club by membership in Germany, which is true. And you look at attendance figures, both in the first and when they're in the second division, very, very strong. They sell out most of their games. It's very hard to get a ticket to Cologne, certainly, you know, harder than a lot of places. They have more expensive tickets than most people. So they, they you know, it's, it's a club that sort of has a lot going for it. But as we all know, have not had a lot going for them on the pitch in the last several years. So having a coach who can bring excitement and who can sort of provide that feeling to supporters that like not only does he know how to coach this team, but he gets it. He gets that this is a big club that is, you know, a sleeping giant. And he wants to wake it up. This is this, they're going to love it. It's the sleeping giant thing that I think that he does because we all, everyone laughs about Cologne fans. Like, like, like you know, they lose three games. It's like, oh, we're going down. This is awful. Tax the coach. They they win the next three games, and then they're wondering, you know, about ticket allocation for Champions League football next season. That's that's just how they roll. But the, but it's important to establish this. Baumgart seems to understand that mentality. And rather than like, you know, Peter Stoger and try and downplay it and be very, very cool and, you know, just like try and contain it, bottle it a little bit more. He's just allowing it to just like completely spill over (laughs) and get completely carried away with it. But at the core of it, of course, is good coaching. And, and good good man management and that's at the core of it it's important to not let the emotion just completely overrun the narrative and you know there's an awful lot of, clearly an awful lot of work being done on the training ground with this team to get them properly organized and playing really well and he's you know he's getting a tune out of Anthony Modeste and when you're doing that then you've always got a chance of winning a football match yeah one quick word about Jesse Marsh maybe obviously here on this side of the uh, Atlantic Ocean there is a lot of concern about how things are going I think it's all sort of due to our Bob Bradley scars I think there's a there's a notion and I think fairly rightly I th- there's a belief that um you know he got a real raw deal and that Jesse Marsh because he's American is gonna basically they're going to get rid of him at their first opportunity. I, I, I don't really buy that, but I do think, and I think Derek Ray, as usual, talked a lot of sense of, about this on Twitter, does bring up the point that he has a long leash, but it's not one of those like, you know, the, the, the little leash that goes inside the, uh, the, the spindle and can sometimes let the dog go as much as like, you know, 40 feet away, which is, you know, let's, let's face it. That's not a good leash. Don't use those leashes, people. I think that something has to turn around in the next month or so. I would say, I don't know exactly what that something is, but it seems to me that even his demeanor, you know, you mentioned Stefan Baumgarten, his sort of like effusive, you know, <laughs> fat German flat cap thing. I mean, what's going on with Marsh? He looks like he is gritting his teeth through. 90 minutes every time the team plays. I noticed it in the Champions League game at midweek, which, you know, let's face it, when you get creamed at the Etihad, maybe it's not going to put a smile on your face. But he doesn't look like he's enjoying uh, his job right now. No, I I mean, if you wanted to be unkind, his demeanor is too much the Champions League, successful Champions League coach, you know. And I think that there's too much sort of like faux dignity going on there. I think he needs to get stuck in a little bit more. I don't know. You know, human beings 
react differently to how to, to these kind of pressure circumstances and it, it was so the, it's just because of the narrative behind this match with Cologne and the contrast between him and, and Baumgart it, it becomes apparent and it's unfair to just simply look at a coach and say you don't behave properly on the touchline that's not fair what, what malice is what he does in the training ground and also you know what he does in game with his calls and stuff like that but he doesn't appear to be getting to grips with the job at the moment. I mean, it's not an acceptable return, even with the losses that they have suffered. And I think, yeah, he's under a, a huge amount of pressure. He's got a game against Herta in match day six. And I mean, I don't know whether, whether or not we were planning on talking about Herta. I know that Herta is Herta, but, you know, if he he's going to need to get three points about that. Otherwise, he's going to find himself under intolerable pressure. That doesn't mean he's going to get fired, of course, because we don't really know how, you know, Red Bull work with this. I mean, they've invested an awful lot in Jesse Marsh. You know, they brought this guy through their system and he is one of their guys and that may well count for something. And it is only six games and there has, you could perhaps look and say, well, it's, you know, it's it's not an ideal start. It's, you know, you don't just replace Upamecano. Even Leipzig, you know, don't just replace Upamecano. And then to lose Sabitzer, that is, that is tough. He's a key player for them. You know, and there have been times when they played really, really well. I mean, the good Stuttgart game was fantastic, a fantastic performance. So there's things to weigh up here about Jesse Marsh. I think what I would certainly reject is the idea that he will get sacked because he's American. I suspect he's likely to get sacked because he's failed to get to grips with the job. I don't see how your nationality has anything whatsoever to do from that. He's made a perfectly legitimate and reasonable journey to the Bundesliga via the Austrian League. He's not the first coach to do that. There's nothing, no reason why he can't succeed there. And I, I don't think anyone would be like venal enough to, to sack a coach because he's American. But I get the narrative and I get the anxiety stateside because obviously, you know, US football fans have got, you know, a strong desire to see their countrymen do well in the sport that they love and traditionally tend not to do so well in and and even now after all these years still probably consider themselves to be somewhat newcomers to this sport and there is a degree of chauvinism there's not a degree of chauvinism there's a there's a, there's a huge amount of chauvinism about about towards americans in football from particularly from europeans which is not likely to go away and jesse marsh succeeding will help counteract that and i get why it's important but i'd be astonished if the red bull guys would be so unprofessional as to, to sack the coach on the basis of nationality. Yep, I don't buy it either. If he gets fired, it'll be because he took a spectacular squad, which he has, into 14th place or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this done next next week, you know, I mean, they could have beaten Hertha 5 0. Then they got to go to, then they got Bruges after, which is a totally winnable game in the Champions League. Bruges are decent, but. But Leipzig should be better. So these are there's two winnable games coming up. So we'll know more in we'll know more in a couple of weeks' time. All right, let's take a break. All right, let's start part two of talking foosball. This is the part where we uh, deal with the rest of the match day in brief and, and, you know, any of the stories that might have emerged. You know, before the break, we were sort of, you know, nattering on about American coaches and how, you know, they are or aren't hard done by in Europe. I think one of the best ways to avoid this, you know, sort of overheated conversation is to just completely ignore the fact that you're American and even show a degree of, of like, overt indifference to the conversation, which is pretty much what Pellegrino Matarazzo does whenever he uh, gets roped into conversations about that. Yeah, he was coaching this weekend at home against Bayer Leverkusen, which I thought was a pretty intriguing match this Sunday in, in the Bundesliga. It was a 3-1 win for Leverkusen in the end. Leverkusen, you know, took a 2-0 lead early through Robert Andrich and uh, Patrick Schick. But, um, you know, the first of those two guys reminded us that uh, what he's really known for 
much, much more so than for scoring goals is uh, reckless challenges. Robert Andres, of course, last year introduced the studs of his boots to uh, Lucas Tussar's neck in uh, the Berlin Derby and decided to do more or less the same to uh, Tangi Kulabayi's knee in, in this game. This I think I went to look at uh, Robert Andres' disciplinary record. This is uh, the 10th the sending off of his professional career. He's been sent off at every club he's ever played for. So, you know, he's getting it out of the way early at, at Leverkusen. So, yeah, going down to 10 men kind of pumped up Stuttgart a little bit. Leverkusen going down to 10 men in those. But it, it wasn't really sustainable. And, uh, in fact, it was um, Florian Wirtz who had set up the second uh, Leverkusen goal, who scored a third in the second half, who pretty much – made this game uh, tip in the favor of Leverkusen. Yeah, Wirtz, I think he must have heard us on on Talking Foosball talking up Jamal Musiala as the best young German player in the league last week because he was like, excuse me? (laughs) Excuse me? Have you forgotten who's been up to this even longer than Jamal, who is much more physically developed and shows a much more ruthless streak in certain aspects of his play. I mean, obviously, no one's going to force us to choose between these two fellas, but um, it's going to be fun as long as these two guys stick around in the Bundesliga. I think the future might be that they play together, just Mm. maybe the way this league works. But, uh, yeah, I'm invigorated watching uh, Wirtz play as well. I uh, can uh, see Florian Wirtz moving to the Premier League, to be fair, also. Because, I mean, I don't know just how many players Bayern can, can continue to buy that every year they do it, but some get through. And I wonder whether or not he might um, follow uh, Kai Havertz's path and make his way to Stamford Bridge. That's based on zero insight, by the way, just simply an instinct. I mean, when I was last on here, I talked a lot about Schick and Diaby as a great partnership and didn't talk much about Wurtz, which was an omission on my part. And I'm happy to talk about him now. It was, uh, I mean, when you, this is what happens when you've got players with quality and pace who can just break through lines and just mess up your plans. Uh, Leverkusen played the perfect second half, I think. I mean, as a neutral, it's great to see a team with 10 men so utterly dominate a football match. I mean, clearly, like, Stuttgart are going to have the ball, so let's make sure, let's let them have the ball, and then we'll close them down, harry them, hassle them, make it difficult for them. We'll slow the game down when we want to slow it down, and if that means pissing off a few Stuttgart fans because we're not taking our goal kicks quickly enough, well, tough shit. And, you know... And <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the time-wasting, Radeski was, was taking, like, a full minute to take a goal glorious. kick. It was glorious. It was glorious. I love that stuff. I mean, obviously, when it's my club, I hate it, but I love it. I absolutely love to see that stuff happen. It's what it's, it's what's, what football should be. It's what, certainly what professional football should be. This is, you know, high-stakes stuff, guys. You know, we got super competitive. Go for every edge that you've got. And it rattled Stuttgart and they didn't cope. They didn't cope with it. They got too emotional and they didn't take advantage of their advantage. And yeah, they got broken through a couple of times. Uh, and we saw um, more than a couple of times, in fact. Um, um, and we saw a really complete 10 man performance. And I have to say, I think Matarazzo has to take some and acknowledge some responsibility for for poor game management there. Uh, I mean, they should have been able to anticipate that this was probably how Leverkusen were going to set themselves up. You've got to be able to try and keep the ball, even if you're stretching the game a little bit and bring your full backs and your centre-half backs a little bit further, stretch the game out, try and wear them down, try and get them exhausted, and then be patient, take time, and get that second and hopefully the third goal that you need. But it doesn't help when you're 2-1 down and you've got 41 minutes to find two goals, but... Really, you know, I would have expected to see a little bit more composure out of Stuttgart in the way that they played that game. But take nothing away from Leverkusen because they played it absolutely perfectly. And the more I see of Jerry Sioni as a coach, you know, the more impressed I am and the more excited I am by Leverkusen and the way that they play. Yeah, I feel like this is a set of circumstances, you know, 2-0 early lead, go down to 10 men, give up a goal. I feel like in many past iterations of, of Leverkusen, the wheels would have totally popped off and they would have just gone <laughs> skidding off the cliff. And that was not how this played out at all. As you said, they basically picked off Stuttgart at 
a moment of weakness, which, you know, you're not going to get a lot of when, when you're playing against uh, 11 men when you're down to 10. Okay, let's bring up another game. This is a game that basically was in progress when we, we started this. I, I don't think we have a lot to say about it uh, because... You know, it was in progress. Uh, Wolfsburg and Eintracht Frankfurt, that was a 1-1 draw to, to finish things out. Wolfsburg, you know, looked like they were on their way to, to deciding the game in their favor, but they, you know, couldn't quite get one in as, as the game reached a close. Wow, my dog is snoring hard. Might even show up on the podcast. Any thoughts about this sort of continued I don't want to say like slow start of Eintracht, but Eintracht are not exactly scaling the heights that they have in, in, in recent years. They are down in 15th place on four points at the moment. Any concern there for you? I remain unconvinced that Oliver Glasner is the right fit for that Eintracht setup. I think that Adi Hutt has set his team up differently. Again, it's been a bit of a theme, this, this, this podcast, isn't it? Emotion. Eintracht of all of those teams were a very emotional team. And Glasner's teams, I think, are, I don't know, they're not quite so. There was something a little bit more clinical, I think, about Wolfsburg. Not clinical as in clinical finishing, I just mean clinical as in very clean, <laughs> perhaps a bit cold. As if they're working in a clinic together. As if they were working in a clinic they've together. They've got lab Indeed. coats on yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> Um, or, you know, maybe in a research laboratory in a, in a car factory or something like that. And, and that isn't Eintracht's vibe at all. And, and, and I mean, I was reading in Kicker, it was a really interesting article in last week's Kicker about how, about Glasner and how, you know, he's a type of person and that maybe that's not quite the right fit there. Who's <clears throat> that said? I mean, still, you know, very, very early days. I was only watching this out of the corner of my eye, so I'm not going to offer a, 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 an opinion, but, what I can say is, as I, I'm also quite surprised about how well Wolfsburg have responded under Mark van Bommel, who I was less than certain about as a potential coach. And so, and it looks like Eintracht have given them a good old game there. So uh, there's, a, there's certainly sufficient quality in that side. That whole business with Kostic won't help, but, you know, uh, I certainly, I mean, I, I'm not expecting great things from them, um, and, but I think that they'll have their moments this season, and I guess it's going to be a, a season of transition. Yeah, yeah. I, I was impressed that Wolfsburg were able to get a result in this game, uh, not not so much because I have so much respect for, for Eintracht, but it seemed like they, they actually did a lot of rotating. Um, today they played, you know, Luca Bacchio and uh, Luca Waldschmidt and uh, Sebastian Borno all started, who... All guys who haven't either, either who are new or who have not been necessarily uh, number one starter types, but they, they, they still got the job done and looked like by the end of the game had, had their foot on the gas much more. Let's quickly talk about uh, the Friday night game. You already gave your verdict on the uh, entertainment value of that game earlier on. Uh, Hertha got a 2 1 win over Kreuter uh, Fürth. Obviously, big win for Hertha. They, you know, came out of the gate with three losses. Now they've got two wins in a row over the two promoted sides. But, uh, you know, it was another worryingly close game against uh, a, a neophyte. But it is also another game where, you know, their, their sporting director, Freddie Bobic, might be tempted to say, I told you so. A lot of hue and cry after the, the, the transfer window closed about how they had not necessarily done very good business. But, you know, Mizian Malida scored the game that sort of iced things last week against Bochum. Jürgen Ekelkamp was, you know, on fire from the moment he took the pitch in this game against Fürth. I mean, he scored the the, the first uh, of Herder's goals, you know, about a minute and a half into his his night, uh, forced the error that led to the winning own goal, really combined very well with, with you know, Marco Richter, notably, but some other guys as well. He looks, he looks like he's the real deal. For Fürth... I'm sure they're very disappointed because they actually were in this game in a way that they haven't been in all of their games this season. Although, you know, they, they played pretty good against Wolfsburg last week as well. I feel like <laughs> if they were doing anything other than getting ready to play Bayern <laughs> on, on Friday, I would be looking, I would say things are looking up, but you know, <laughs> considering that's the, that's the deal, maybe not. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to call with Perth. Is it only still too early to really have a firm opinion about them? They do appear to have been at times quite well beaten, but then, as you say, against a, a struggling Hertha side, 
or that is to say a, a, a herd society that is doing its best to battle its demons and is so far, you know, succeeding in doing so, you know, they were probably a, perhaps a bit unlucky or undone by some genuine quality. I mean, I don't think anyone expects too much from them <laughs> against Bayern. So that's a free hit. But what, what they will be looking to avoid, obviously, is a massive drubbing and to like let it affect the rest of their season. But those guys, have, I mean, I think we all thought that they were not likely to survive. And, and this was a kind of game against Hertha who, you know, have got quality and have got resources and are a big club, but, you know, are clearly there for the taking because of the kind of the start to the season that they had. This was a game they would have looked at and thought, well, we can get something from this one, lads. And they've come away with absolutely nothing. So that's not, in many respects, at least maybe that result maybe tells you more about what their relegation prospects are than the forthcoming Bayern game, whatever the result happens to be. Yeah, I think, weirdly enough, we've sort of damned uh, Fürth and Bochum as, as the two likeliest relegation candidates. However, I would say just in terms of, of the eye test, as much as I've, I've seen these two, two teams, I've seen them play probably twice um, so far this season, they're not that bad. Mm. They're nowhere near as bad as, say, Schalke or Mainz were in the first half of last season, who, who were just trash. Mm. I mean, these, these two teams, they're not good, but they're not terrible. Yeah. I mean, is there a, a Schalke or Werder equivalent emerging this season from this Bundesliga side? I think they're, I mean, I mean, I'm beginning to feel that they're all to one degree or another either pretty well set up or so good that even if they're poorly set up, <laughs> it doesn't matter because they've got some amazing players. I'm just wondering if there's any, there doesn't so far seem to be a, an outstandingly bad team. I don't know. We haven't talked about Gladbach, interestingly, so far, but. I didn't watch that game, and so I think no, a, no, I, I, a, I didn't watch the game either. There's a piece of work to be done about Gladbach, I think. But uh, but yeah, it's a really interesting season. What we were saying right from the off, you know, if you set your team right up right in this in this division, you'll go, you'll go, you can go well. But yeah, you do need the players. So, well, speaking of Gladbach, uh, I guess all we can really say, having not watched them is that they lost 1-0 to Augsburg. Uh, Florian Niederlechner was, was, got the winner about 10 minutes from time, and they're not a trash fire yet, but it is an ominous thing that we do have uh, a, a string of overachievers or achievers last season in Stuttgart, Frankfurt, and uh, Gladbach uh, all, all hanging around the bottom with Leipzig, all those, those teams on four points. Rubbing shoulders with uh, Armenia Bielefeld, which is never a good place to be. Bielefeld, speaking of, they uh, they earned a nil-nil draw against Hoffenheim, and I invite anyone who watched that game uh, to you know write a tweet thread about it, and we will retweet the hell out of it because just no, just no, I'm not watching that. Yeah, we'll leave that kind of game for the full time. Do us, a, do us a solid. So that is all for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct. It was produced, as always, by Aidan Rantoul. Lovely to have you back on the show, Terry. Always happy to come back and always available when required, mostly. Yeah, that is why we love you, Terry. You can follow him on Twitter, at Terry DeFellin. If you want to contact me there, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your pods. Please do that. Please leave us a rating, a review, a word of mouth recommendation to a cherished friend. Yeah, it's a big help, all those things. The next edition of Talking Foosball Extra uh, will be coming up in a couple of days. Talking Foosball Fantasy, of course, will round out the week. JT and Flo, they'll set you up, get you ready for match day six. This is some next time, all y'all. <laughs>